It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. We're going to get you caught up on the voter ID lawsuit. It is in trial as we speak. I've got highlights from the first few days of the trial. want to give a shout out to the patrons that make the show possible. Folks like Easy and Daniel and Lisa, Janet, Loretta, David, Stephen, Curtis, Sherry, Nick, and David, thanks so much for becoming patrons. They did. You can as well just by going to the com, clicking on the link that's at the top there. Uh, that takes you to the page. It also takes you to the page to subscribe. So you'll never miss another podcast again. So the North Carolina voter ID law in trial. And uh, this is the AP write-up that uh, the law requiring photo identification to cast ballots went on trial this week with attorneys for voters challenging the mandate by arguing it still disproportionately prevents black residents from carrying out their constitutional right. A panel of three state Superior Court judges began hearing evidence in the litigation filed to overturn the December 2018 law that filled in the details of how a voter ID constitutional amendment that got approved in the statewide referendum, right, how that would be implemented. Okay, so here is first Allison Riggs. She is the attorney for the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, outlining how the plaintiffs here do not need to produce a smoking gun, so to speak. Um, You know, some lawmakers email that says, you know, we're doing this because of race. They don't need to do that. She says the standard is that race can be a motivating factor. This case is, of course, about intentional racial discrimination. During trial, we will prove that North Carolina passed a law to keep black voters from voting. The United States Supreme Court has established a roadmap for proving intentional discrimination cases through circumstantial evidence. But in short, no damning statements from legislators are necessary for plaintiffs to prevail. So she's arguing explicitly that the lawmakers passed this law to prevent black voters from voting. She argued that it is wrong to look at evidence in silos, in isolation, and not view the evidence uh, in a larger context. The court can also draw an inference of intent um, from the totality of relevant circumstantial uh, facts. That inference is important. It's important that this court not miss the forest for the trees. And in this case, we believe you will be invited to view and dismiss each of the individual facts on their own. That was the same error that the district court in the House Bill 589 case made. And it's why the Fourth Circuit reversed the district court there. Okay, so... She's telling the judges here, don't look at, you know, each individual piece of evidence. You got to look at all of those pieces when put together. She outlines the factors as determined by the Supreme Court that uh, should be considered as they attempt to divine the legislature's intent, uh, namely historical background, the sequence of events, disparate impacts, which, you know, means something bears more heavily on one race than another, as well as the legislative history. The enactment of Senate Bill 824 did not exist did not happen 
um, in a vacuum. We will be putting on evidence um, from several experts to discuss the historical background. The first will be Dr. Carol Anderson, a professor of African American studies at Emory University. Professor Anderson's research and teaching focus on public policy, particularly the ways that domestic and international policies intersect through the issues of race, justice, and equality in the United States. And it's relevant to what's happening in North Carolina because it provides context for voter ID laws about how they're not about or explained by partisan policy preference. Across the country, she will explain the effect that they have and how they create barriers for black voters. The same voters who already face barriers caused by the history of discrimination in our country. I'll talk more about this topic when I talk about why this law is about racial discrimination and not just some quote unquote acceptable level of partisan politics. We'll also be calling Dr. James Lalutis, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who has for more than 30 years taught and researched the history of North Carolina politics, government and public policy. Dr. Lalutis served as an expert witness for the plaintiffs who success, successfully challenged House Bill 589 in the McCrory case in 2016. Dr. Lutus will document and explain the history of voting and election laws in North Carolina, and that is characterized by recurring cycles of expansion of the franchise to African Americans, followed by a backlash and retrenchment in which the General Assembly enacts new, facially neutral measures often justifying them as necessary to address purported voter fraud that targets methods of participating in elections used by African Americans with the intent and effect of restricting their ability to vote. Dr. Lelutis will explain that Senate Bill 824 fits squarely in this observed historical pattern as it is the latest example of a backlash and retrenchment against expanded access to the ballot for African-Americans in North Carolina. So two major points here. The first expert witness is going to talk about how uh, voter ID is not about or explained by partisan policy preference. OK, it's just it's just racist. Uh, and then the second point is that uh, this history, this historical look that North Carolina has the expansion of voting rights to blacks, and then there is this backlash by lawmakers to try to rein that in. And uh, she also mentioned House Bill 589 there, which was, that's an important part of the historical background uh, in this lawsuit, which is over Senate Bill 824. Enacted in 2013 and struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2016 because the provisions of the law um, targeted African-American voters with almost surgical precision. House Bill 589 is relevant for many different reasons, but it's important to note how it started. House Bill 589 was enacted in the wake of a United States Supreme Court um, invalidating the coverage formula and thus removing the protections of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Within days of that decision that the legislative leadership celebrated, the legislature acted to impose restrictions on voting that would have never passed muster under Section 5. This was the pre-clearance mechanism. More on that in a bit. This is not ancient history. This is in this decade. These are cases that we have collectively, those in the courtroom, worked on and lived 
and our and our electorate has been affected by that law. Now, again, the legislative defendants may tell you this isn't relevant, but the North Carolina Co Court of Appeals said um, it is as a matter of law is part of the broader context. And that interpretation of Article 1, Section 19 is binding. Of course, House Bill 589 alone is not dispositive. We aren't saying it is, but it is a relevant piece of the broader context the Court of Appeals instructed this court to take into consideration. All right. So there you have sort of the broad strokes of the plaintiff's opening arguments. OK, uh, they're, they're not dispositive. Right. It's, this is not the totality of their arguments, but those are the broad strokes. Um, let me give you some broad strokes actually on uh, Growers Hemp, which is a North Carolina uh, farmer operated business. These are North Carolina farmers from east of Charlotte. They got together and they said, you know what, we're already growing the hemp crop. Why don't we control the process, the manufacturing process? Uh, so this way we can give you better quality at a lower price and North Carolinians can support North Carolina farmers. So they started Growers Hemp. I take the Growers Hemp full spectrum hemp extract uh, and I recommend it. If I take a couple drops before I go to bed, I sleep more deeply when I take them than I uh, than I ever have before I ever started taking them. So, and I can tell when I miss a night or two. I can tell I don't sleep through the night. Uh, so, check them out at GrowersHemp.com. That's the website. Use my name, Pete, and you'll get twenty percent off as a promo code. Pete, GrowersHemp.com. Here is the disclaimer language. Got to give it to you. As with all CBD products, uh, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research, and these products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and nothing I've said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So, consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Go to growershemp.com from North Carolina farmers to your home, Growers Hemp, growershemp.com. Use my name, Pete, for 20% off. It's about the hemp and not the hype. All right, so next up is David Thompson. He is a lawyer for the North Carolina General Assembly defendants. Uh, he then made his opening argument. It directed the state board to include in all voter education materials sent to citizens and on informational posters at polling places, a statement that, quote, all registered voters will be allowed to vote with or without a photo ID card, close quote. And the state board was also required by the General Assembly to send not one, not two, not three, four separate mailings to every household in the state over the years 2019 and 2020, describing the forms of acceptable photo ID and the options for provisional balloting for those who lacked a photo ID. You don't have to take our word for it, your honors. The nonpartisan National Conference of State Legislature classifies the law as, quote, non-strict, close quote. And Professor Keegan Callanan of Middlebury College, who's currently teaching at Princeton, will testify that the General Assembly crafted a non-strict, flexible and accommodating law as compared to other photo ID laws. And that conclusion is obvious given the sweeping and generous nature of the reasonable impediment provisions. Plaintiffs have no answer 
to this expansive nature of the law. Why would a legislature that was racially motivated include as qualifying IDs, IDs held by college student and governmental employees who are disproportionately minority? Why would a racially motivated legislature create a reasonable impediment provision that allows everyone to vote with or without an ID, provided they tell the truth? Why would a racially motivated legislature look at 184 reasonable impediment ballots cast out of over 2, two million people voting and, and look at that and say, let's make the law more lenient so that there are fewer reasonable impediment ballots that aren't counted and would consider that a tool of political entrenchment? Why would a racially motivated ID make IDs free with no documentation? And why would they make them available at one-stop voting to eliminate the marginal burden of transportation? And why would they make four voter mailings to every household in the state? The answer is a racially motivated legislature would not have done any of these things, let alone all of them. And they have no answer to that point. He went on to argue that the Republicans did this because it was a constitutional amendment. It got approved by the voters, right? So they had to implement something. Their theory is that Republicans targeted African-American voters to entrench themselves. That's their theory. And it's completely implausible because the law doesn't prevent people from voting. What sort of person, what sort of legislature would say, well, I want to entrench myself, so I'm going to pass a law that allows people to continue to vote with or without an ID? It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and if we look at the legislative history, as I've noted, there was support from African Americans and Democrats which again suggests that their theory doesn't make any sense. You'll hear testimony from Joel Ford, one of the bill's three primary sponsors, who is an African-American de Democrat. In addition to Joel Ford, another African-American Democrat, Don Davis, and two white Democrats, Dwayne Hall and Ken Goodman, also voted for SB 824 in its final form. And a third African-American Democrat, Ben Clark, voted for SB 824 the first time it was in the Senate. You won't see this support from Democrats, from African-American Democrats, if SB 824 really were weaponized uh, for political entrenchment of the opposing party. And what's more, Thompson went on to argue, is that the Republicans could have crammed a bill through without any Democratic votes at all or amendments, which were run and approved, um, or primary sponsors, co-sponsors that were Democrats. But they did. Right. They they did these things. They asked for amendments. They allowed Democrats to participate. Uh, they had Democratic co-sponsors, but they could have run it through because they still had a super majority. Uh, he then went on to quote Democratic senators who thanked the GOP for the process and for including them. He had a whole list of them that were ripped from the headlines, so to speak. Uh, I've got some of them here. Let's see. Um, Democratic Senator Floyd McKissick. I'd just like to say thank you to the Republican senators for their work on the bill and for being open and inclusive in listening to us on the other side of the aisle and trying to come up with something that is reasonable in terms of its approach. So I want to thank you for that effort. Democratic Senator Erica Smith, who's now running for U.S. Senate, 
She said, and is also, and both of these uh, senators are African Americans. Uh, Smith says, "I want to thank the bill sponsors for their hard work that you've been doing in negotiating and accepting many of the amendments that have been placed before you." Democratic Senator Terry Van Dyne from Asheville said, "I want to very sincerely acknowledge the work the GOP did, particularly around amendments that have been brought to you by my colleagues. I'm very grateful for every one that you've incorporated." Senator Mike Woodard, Democrat, we appreciate the. Rep- Republican caucus amending the bill to allow issuance of voter IDs during early voting. Democratic Representative Pricey Harrison, one of the most left-wing senators or representatives in the General Assembly, said this bill is a much better bill than the bill that left this chamber in 2013. So it raises this question, the obvious question, why would they be praising the Republicans for running a bill that supposedly is designed to entrench Republicans in power and to disfranchise or disenfranchise black voters? Why would they be saying these things? So, all right, next up, the plaintiff's first expert witness, Professor Carol Anderson. She is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University. And Uh, She explained the preclearance mechanism that was instituted by federal courts decades ago in order to prevent southern states from enacting voting laws that targeted black voters in order to suppress their participation in elections. And she said that this mechanism was a game changer, leading to elimination of Jim Crow era laws and driving up black voter participation. Dr. Anderson, uh, in in your research, uh, was there a particular point in history where North Carolina decided to intentionally disenfranchise black voters? It becomes really intense during the rise of Jim Crow because Jim Crow was really about disfranchising and setting up a rule of law that was separate and unequal. And so after the the coup in Wilmington in 1898 that overthrew what they called a fusionist government in 1899, you had the act to regulate elections that had a series of disfranchising measures in there. That was followed by the uh, constitutional amendments in 1900. Those constitutional amendments included the poll tax, the literacy test, and the grandfather clause. Dr. Anderson, how does North Carolina's use of the poll tax and literacy test and grandfather clause compare with other Southern states? Um, It's right in line with those other southern states um, in terms of uh, requiring payment, um, in terms of requiring a level of literacy, um, in terms of the caprice of the registrar um, at one point. Um, And and then one of the things that you saw when the, the literacy test was challenged in the 1950s, North Carolina did what I call a just so tweak. And that just so tweak was to eliminate the caprice of the registrar in the literacy test, but maintaining the foundation of the literacy test um, so that it could get through a judicial review, which it did in the Lassiter decision in 1959. And what was the effect of of the poll tax and literacy test on black voters in North Carolina? Black um, black voter registration plummeted. It plummeted. Dr. Dr. Anderson, where, uh, what, what explains this result? Why did black registration plummet? Um, it was the combination of going after the socioeconomic status 
of African-Americans brought about by the legacies of slavery. So the ways that um, uh, poverty worked um, to, to, to make paying the poll tax difficult, very difficult. The way that um, the lack of education, the lack of quality education made passing the literacy test very, very difficult. It was like a twin pincer motion on, on the black electorate. And were these devices facially, facially race neutral? Uh, yes, they were not written to say, we don't want black people to vote, but the ways that they use the legacies of slavery targeted um, African-American voters. And given your research, does a voting law need to be explicitly racist in order to disenfranchise voters? No, it does not have to say, we don't want black people to vote. You can have facially race neutral laws that do the work of, of discriminating against uh, black voters. Dr. Anderson, would you consider the poll tax and literacy test to be forms of voter suppression? Absolutely. And do you, would you say that they are forms of voter suppression in North Carolina? They were forms of voter suppression in North Carolina. Absolutely, yes. Dr. Anderson, how does uh, the history of voter suppression in North Carolina impact your opinion about SB 824? Um, it, it, it shows that there is a pattern of lawmakers looking at black political um, power, black political advocacy, electoral power, and then responding with a series of laws to undercut that black political power. So SB 824 is in line with that pattern. And Dr. Anderson, how did you come to that opinion? Uh, I came to that opinion um, by looking at um, the history of voter suppression in North Carolina. So seeing what happened with the uh, act to regulate elections in 1899, followed by the constitutional amendments um, in the, for the poll tax, the grandfather clause, and the literacy test that give it this aura of legitimacy, that then looking at the ways that it was implemented, um, then looking at how when there were judicial challenges, uh, the, the tweaking of those laws, to the, the tweaking of the literacy test in order to make it um, judicially palatable, and then seeing how in the 2008 and the 2012 elections, the presidential elections, how you had strong black voter turnout. Um, and the response was HB 589, which the Fourth Circuit ruled had targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Um, and then seeing how coming after that judicial brushback pitch, you get another just so tweak with SB 824, which was to one, um, the, the McCrory decision for HB 589 said one of the things was that um, it was the, the omnibus feel of this. It was the cumulative effect of all of these measures in HB 589 that was part of the big red flag. So you see with SB 824 pulling voter ID out of that larger law. And you also see um, where you get these um, um, reasonable impediments 
um, which was also part of the McCrory, uh, was in the McCrory dissent that was put in the SB 824 to, to, to as another kind of just so tweak to be able to get it through judicial review. And Dr. Anderson, you mentioned just so tweaks. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean these um, amend, amending a law in a way that removes, shaves off the most egregious components, but leaves the essence of that law in place. I got a couple more sound bites from Professor Anderson that we'll hear first. Let me tell you about General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of uh, Reams Creek Road and Merriman, and uh, they've they're family owned and operated for three generations. But the big deal here is the big deal. Go check out the website generalrents.com for information on Husqvarna products that are available uh, for their demo day. Husqvarna. Uh, is also running a couple of deals uh, separately for the stand-on mower, uh, the V548, V554. Uh, you can get like $3,500 off on these things, okay? So general equipment rental, they're your place to go for equipment rental needs for big projects, small projects, whether you're a homeowner and you just need to do this one project or uh, you're a contractor and you need a, a piece of equipment for a couple days for a larger project, they can help you out, hook you up with any of your needs, but they are also your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. So go check them out. Spring is here, and uh, if you are looking to replace or upgrade some of your tools, get the legendary power, performance, and reliability of a Husqvarna at General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. All right, so Professor Anderson says that her conclusion that Senate Bill A24, that's the one that uh, was you know most recently written, uh, she says it's intended to suppress black voters. And she concludes that because it followed on the heels of House Bill 589, which was struck down by the courts. It fit the pattern that I saw at the turn of the century in the rise of Jim Crow, where there was a law the 1899 Act to regulate elections that had in there um, the poll tax and the literacy test and the grandfather clause. And then you get the election for the constitutional amendments to embed those disfranchising measures into the North Carolina Constitution. And when you look at SB 824, you see um, HB 589 gets its brushback pitch um, saying, you know, you've targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. And you see the next wave is uh, an election about uh, a law for um, voter ID and then you to put it into the Constitution. But on cross-examination, the lawyer for the General Assembly, David Thompson, brought out how little of Professor Anderson's analysis actually focused on the current law. So is it fair to say that your work opposes voter ID laws? Yes, I do oppose voter ID laws. Is it your opinion that voter ID laws are an example of white rage? What do you mean by white rage? Well, uh, I'm going to, you remember you were deposed, uh, Professor? Yes. And you were under oath. Let me play an excerpt of your deposition. In your opinion, are voter ID laws an example of white rage? Yes. Do you stand by that testimony, Professor? 
Yes, I do. Um, I, my, my question was, were you talking about white rage the way that I define it? Or were you I'm, talking about it in another way? I'm using all the terms today in the exact same way you use them in the deposition. Okay. Um, and you wrote a book called White Rage, is that right? That is correct. And your concept of white rage is that it's about an ideology that's based on white supremacy, is that right? It is the opera operationalizing of, a, of an idea of, of, of a fear of black political participation and undermining African-Americans access to their civil rights as they advance. It, it is an ideology that is based on white supremacy in your opinion, yes or no? Objection asked and answered. Just one second, please. The question wasn't answered, so please go ahead and answer it. Just pause for one second before you answer it. Oh. oh, sorry. The objection is overruled. Thank you. You may proceed, and now you may answer the question. Um, white rage is based on um, a series of, of ideas that African Americans are second class citizens and do not have full access to their citizenship rights. And so thought, white rage pulls back and undermines and undercuts African Americans access to their rights. Um, and, and you heard in your deposition sworn testimony just now where you said, quote, it is about an ideology that is based on white supremacy. You heard that? Yes. And you and you were telling the truth. Yes. Okay, you believe that Republicans want a white republic, correct? That is from an op-ed that I wrote um, where I am talking about the way that voter suppression has been targeted at African-Americans and at Hispanics um, to um to to recreate this 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 world where an america where whites had inordinate power and access to inordinate disproportionate resources and so in looking at the policies that you see coming out of um uh many republicans It is a way to limit the political voices and influence of American citizens. And that was the title of your piece in Time Magazine was, quote, Republicans want a white republic, correct? Um, the author does not write the headlines. Did you disagree with the headline? I think that what Republicans want is an America that in many ways, when you're looking at the laws that are being advocated, um, when you're looking at targeting African-Americans with almost surgical precision, that this is trying to recreate um, an era, a bygone era that we have fought so hard for 
to, to rid ourselves of on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. In your view, SB 824 is an example of white rage, correct? Yes. Okay. And do you recall learning at your deposition that one of SB 824's primary sponsors was Senator Joel Ford, an African American? Yes. Objection, Your Honor. This you is this is, total, this is objection, Your Honor. This is uh, improper impeachment. Uh, we actually asked to approach the bench um, to discuss a, a matter um, outside of the presence of the witness. Give me just one second, please. The uh, objection is overruled. Your request to approach the bench is denied at this time. You did not know when you were preparing your report for this case that one of the primary sponsors of the law at issue was an African-American. Is that correct? That is correct. But in your opinion, African-Americans can have white rage too. Is that right? White rage, not all whites have white rage because white rage is about a policy, policies that are put in place to undermine African-Americans advancement. How and who puts those policies in place um, that is not race dependent. That is not party dependent. So that's yes, African-Americans can have white rage, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and in your view, a judge who votes to uphold a voter ID law is exhibiting white rage. Is that right? Like Clarence Thomas and Shelby County. Yes. Okay. And then Professor Anderson made a kind of startling admission. I'll tell you what that was in a minute. First, let me tell you about Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. Uh, time uh, to build your own first aid kit for whatever reasons, like whether you're a prepper, you're uh, an outdoor adventurer, you need a first aid kit. And here's a good idea. Keep one in the car. It's always good to have a first aid kit in the car. You never know. I mean, I've actually seen accidents occur on the road and, uh, you know, get out to help. Wouldn't it be nice to have a first aid kit to be able to administer some aid to somebody until, you know, paramedics arrive? Be prepared. Go to Old Grouch's military surplus, tons of real U.S. military surplus items for more than three decades on Main Street in downtown Clyde. Shop is open Monday through Saturday across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. So Professor Carol Anderson from Emory University then makes this admission on cross-examination. In reaching your conclusion uh, about SB 824, you concluded that it was born out of North Carolina's prior voter ID law 589. Is that right? Yes. But in preparing your report, you did not review the text of HB 589, did you? No, I did not. And in preparing your report, you did not even review the text of ASB 824, did you? I reviewed the floor debates for SB 824. But not the text? But not the text. Okay, so you didn't compare the provisions of SB 824 to HB 589, did you? No, I looked at the McCrory decision and the way the McCrory decision uh, outlined what was in HB 589. In your view, the only thing the General Assembly could have done to excise the discrimination 
found in 589 would be to not have a voter ID law. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yes. So it's your conclusion that any law requiring photo ID that the General Assembly could have passed would be consistent with North Carolina's pattern of voter suppression? Yes. So that's a pretty important thing to know, don't you think? That the primary sponsor of the bill was a black Democrat? She did not know that. Um, she also did not know that the General Assembly adopted seven amendments that were sponsored by the Democrats on this bill. And it had bipartisan support from three black uh, lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers. So she didn't know any of this. Neither did the second expert witness that the uh, the plaintiffs had. This fellow by the name of James Lee Lutis, Lilotis. Lelutis, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he didn't know this either. But note that Anderson's position here is already predetermined. She is against any voter ID law, and she considers any voter ID law to be consistent with a pattern of suppression. This is the equivalent of judge shopping. This is expert shopping, right? You know what the expert, quote unquote, is going to say, so you go and ask them to say it. Media does this, by the way, all the time. <laughs> they find somebody to interview that will say a certain thing and they put that into the story, you know, and then they say experts say, well, no, the expert you interviewed said that and you knew they were going to say it before you did the interview. I do interviews. I've done interviews for 20 years. It is rare that I don't know what someone is going to be talking about when I book them <laughs> for the interview. It's generally why you book them in the first place. You know what they're going to say. And they knew what Professor Anderson was going to say. She's against all of it, all voter ID uh, mechanisms, to the point where she didn't even need to read the laws <laughs> as they were written, because it doesn't matter. Any voter ID is a is suppression and is a manifestation of white rage, which is an ideology born of white supremacy that, oh, by the way, black Democrats can also experience and exhibit. Isn't that convenient? Speaking of convenient, Rowena Patton will get your house sold fast and for more money. And isn't that convenient? I'd say so. Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team outsell 99% of the realtors in the entire state. She is also the official and only Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville. This is a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. This goes to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military, so veterans, active duty, and retirees. She's given back about $800,000 so far uh, to local folks in those five professions. So keep more of your own money. Call Rowena Patton, buying or selling the only agent that I called, Rowena Patton, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com is the website. Give Rowena a call and then start packing. So the next expert witness, this history professor from UNC Chapel Hill, James Lelutis, Lelutis? I think I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, um, also did not know who Senator Joel Ford is. And he asserted that voter ID presents a serious barrier for blacks and minorities. In Senate Bill 824, though, there is a provision for people to vote if they have a what's called a reasonable impediment to getting an ID and then they can fill out a form. But Lelotis called this 
also call this a barrier. You say that to avail themselves of that provision, low-income minority voters must share details of their private lives in formal declarations sworn before election officials at their assigned polling places. Do you remember saying that, sir? Uh, yes. Okay. And does SB 824 have different requirements for low-income minority voters and low-income white voters? Um, no, it doesn't. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact um, that it um, erects a serious barrier uh, for those minority voters. And white voters? Some white voters, yes. Okay. And um, you um, say that they're going to have to attest to their economic circumstances before a public official. Is that your testimony? Well, I have to fill out a form, um, the exact form of which I, I, I don't know, and I'm not sure we know uh, since, you know, this has not been implemented. Um, that indicates their, um, their disability. Um, yeah, that's that. That is a um, revelation of my personal circumstances that other voters do not have to make. Well, now you've just changed. You went from economic circumstances to personal circumstances. Which is it? I'm, okay, I'm not quite sure that's what I said, but economic circumstances are certainly a large part of it. Yes. Well, there are other things. I, I may be ill and so on, but uh, economic circumstances, um, I think, with, are very likely to be first on that list. But Senate Bill 824 actually gives a whole host of reasons for why people might qualify for reasonable impediment forms to fill out, like a lost or stolen ID. Uh, that their work schedule doesn't permit them to get the time off to go get an ID, um, their family responsibilities, aging parents, disabled parents, disabled children, family members, that sort of thing. So the idea that you have to fill out the form doesn't automatically identify you as somebody living in poverty. And so my point is when somebody checks the box, if I see you checking a box, I don't know whether your ID was lost I don't know if you have trying family circumstances. I don't know if you have a boss who won't let you take time off. I don't know whether you've left your ID somewhere. I don't know if it's been stolen from you. And I don't know if you have some personal medical circumstance. I, I, I just don't know how, why do you say that, oh, it's gonna be, uh, people are gonna assume that you're poor. I, I say that because um, I think it's perfectly reasonable um, to contend that people living in poverty are more likely to face those kinds of impediments and be in positions in their lives in which they cannot do things like hire someone to come in and relieve them of their duties. Now, do people make personal decisions within those categories? Certainly they do. Um, but again, as busy as I am, as light complicated as life is, I have the opportunity to write a check uh, and to attend to these kinds of matters. And I, I think we need to be really careful uh, to assume uh, that the realities of the lives of people living in poverty are somehow just like the lives of those who've uh, 
those of us who never wanted for much of anything. Well, and, and remember, my questions don't go to that at all. My questions go to this issue of stigma, because the premise of your report is that when someone takes one of these forms and checks the box, everyone's going to assume that they're low income and they'll feel stigmatized. And it's just not true, because there are many of these categories that affect people in middle brackets and upper brackets just as much, like lost IDs. Yeah, well, I, I think at the end of the day, um, this provision is new to my knowledge. No one has you know done surveys or focus groups on these questions. So I think at the end of the day, it is actually not clear um, that we know this for fact one way or the other. Well, all I'm doing here is calling attention to the very different material circumstances of the lives of people who live in poverty uh, and the ways that that might well erect for them a barrier uh, that does not uh, exist for other people. So notice the change in Lelutis's language here. Uh, he first starts off talking about, and in his report talks about how, you know, this law erects barriers, erects a serious barrier. It's always about, you know, erecting all of these barriers. But there at the very end, he kind of qualifies it by saying it might well erect a barrier, which is far less definitive because it might not erect any barriers for people. But the point here is not that um, that there may be a barrier. The point is whether or not it is a stigmatizing barrier. It is something that would identify people in some way, and it doesn't because there are a whole host of reasons why people would be able to get this form. And he keeps trying to turn it back to, let's focus on the poor people. And like, okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody who gets the form is a poor person. It might in your mind mean that, but it might also mean that somebody just didn't have time to get an ID or they had their license stolen or they lost their wallet, whatever the case might be. Finally, there was a question about whether past discrimination can condemn governmental action that is not itself unlawful. In other words, original sin. Would you agree with the statement that past discrimination cannot in the manner of original sin condemn governmental action that is not itself unlawful? Um, I, I, I think that's uh, right. There's always room for redemption. The question is, <laughs> is whether the behavior has, has in fact been um, an expression of contrition and a desire for redemption. And there, I don't imagine for a moment that we somehow have reached the end of history and that um, you know this long history uh, of racial discrimination we've been talking about is suddenly, with the waving of a wand, uh, no no longer a part of the realities of our lives. Now, did you notice what he just did there? I'll, I'll explain what he did in a second. First, uh, let me tell you about mattress man free upgrades. That's what I call them because you can get a king size mattress for the price of a queen. So I consider that a free upgrade. King for the price of a queen, and a queen for the price of a twin. A free upgrade from Mattress Man. What a great deal. They've got four stores in Asheville, in Hendersonville, and in Arden. Their uh, new location on Airport Road is in the IHOP Shopping Center. Go check them out uh, or go check out the website. Better yet, do both. Go to mattressmanstores.com. Check out the inventory, all the great deals. They are the exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection made by Restonic in Fayetteville, so right here in North Carolina. You'll get free local five-star delivery service, and they do ship nationwide, and they have a 120-day comfort guarantee. 
It's a win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win. And remember to take advantage of Mattress Man's tax refund deal. Sleep in the bed before you even pay a dime. Uh, you can uh, you get the tax refund and then you just put it all to the mattress when it comes in. Uh, the, you don't need any credit. They have flexible financing options like no interest for two years. Uh, go check them out. Tell them you heard it here on the show. Patronize the businesses that help support the show. Mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. So what Professor Lelutis did was when asked about this question of original sin, you know, does a previous legislative action make automatically bad another legislative action that comes down the pike later. Um, and by the way, that is a Supreme Court standard, that there is no original sin here. You you cannot um, condemn governmental action that's not itself unlawful based only on a prior legislative action. And so what Lelutis does is he says, well, there's always room for redemption. And then he turns on that word, redemption, that there's always room for redemption. And then he says that this isn't redemption. Well, it's not a question of redemption. That's not the point of the standard, right? He twists the standard from the Supreme Court to get to this conclusion of whether voter ID is a redemptive policy. But it's not a redemptive policy. It's not intended to be a redemptive policy. It's intended to be a security policy. That's the purpose. It's not intended to be redemptive. Also, was there any sort of waving of a wand that ceased voter fraud, voting fraud, election fraud? Did that did that stop as well? Because I know he says that there was no waving of the wand here, you know, to, to end racism. Was there a waving of the wand to end voting fraud, which has been going on since, you know, ballots were first created. <laughs> um, so, no, he, but again, it's, you know, these are witnesses that are brought forth in order to advance the plaintiff's case. I understand that. Now, there was another witness. Her name was Elizabeth Holmes. And uh, she, I don't have any audio from her. She was the, she is the mother of one of the plaintiffs, Jabari Holmes, um, who is uh, severely disabled with cerebral palsy. And uh, she lives in Wake County. She is a, you know, she, is a primary caregiver for her son, and she outlined how difficult it was to get a state-issued ID to qualify to vote in person under the old 2013 law, only to never get one, in part, she said, due to the administrative obstacles. She said it took 45 minutes to vote in person in early 2016, and she had to fill out a form because he lacked an ID, but they didn't know if he actually voted or not. Until later when they checked the website and, yes, they counted the vote. See, so he did get to vote. He was never deprived of the ability to vote, despite lacking an ID. And she talked about how difficult it was to get this ID. Now, what I find interesting is that the, uh, I just read to you from the AP story as it appeared at WRAL, uh, they left out the part where uh, she talked about how she gave up. She gave up trying to get the ID. She abandoned her effort when she was approached to file the lawsuit, right? He, her son is so disabled that he uses a, um, a computer to talk, but he watches CNN like, like for five hours a day, she said. And again, none of this is in the AP story. So he gets all of his news from CNN, 
And he makes he has a certain pride, a special pride in going to vote. He makes a special effort to go vote every year. He's got all of his I voted stickers from like the last eight elections or something. So like this is something that's very important to him. And uh, she says he has no ID. Well, does he have a Social Security number? Yes, he does. Okay, well, how would one go about getting a Social Security card? Because she doesn't have one for him. Do you think that might be an important piece of documentation for him to have? Because at some point, if she passes away before he does, do you think it's going to be important for him to have those documents? I submit it is. So why wouldn't you go about making the efforts to get these documents? Because they serve a greater purpose than simply getting a voter ID. But here's the thing. The new law, as it's uh, written, this 824, Senate Bill 824, all she has to do, the mom, all she has to do is be able to say the last four digits of his social security number and his birth date. They've made an accommodation for Jabari Holmes. They've made this accommodation in the law, yet they're still suing, say it's saying, oh, it's too hard to get this law or to get this ID. When in fact, they abandoned their efforts to get this ID because they were approached about being plaintiffs in the litigation, which has been going on now for years. So you're telling me it wasn't too hard to participate in litigation for three or four years now. Like that's not too heavy of a lift, but getting a social security card or getting a free ID, like or knowing the last four digits of your social security number. Like, again, you got to vote even when you didn't meet the rules. You still got to vote, and it still counted. You just weren't sure if it counted until afterwards when they uploaded all the provisional ballots into the system. That's what they're saying. Like, at some point, don't you have to take some certain responsibility for actually making an effort to vote? I don't think that's too much to ask. Uh, all right, uh, that's a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to the podcast at thepetecalendarshow.com. Talk with you later and don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>